Welcome to Out of Curiosity. Consider us your field guide for queer pride. You will hear from the best of the best in terms of queer business leaders, queer relationship experts, the activists working to protect us all, and everyday LGBTQ people that have figured a few things out so you don't have to. Out of Curiosity is brought to you by the Pride and Joy Foundation. Let's do this. Welcome back to Out of Curiosity. I'm your host, Elena Joy, pronouns she, her. We are brought to you by the Pride and Joy Foundation. All right, y'all, story time. When I was just 20 years old, I was a newlywed at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. My husband and I had just gotten married. I had just graduated from Arizona State. Chad had a full ride and lots of schooling to finish. So off we went to BYU. I left behind the entire career I had prepared for. We landed in cold, snowy Provo in January, and I had no job. Little did I know how competitive the job market was in that small college town and how getting a decent job truly depended on who you knew. And I knew no one. I went on hundreds of interviews those first few months. I began to get desperate, as the plan was for me to be the primary breadwinner while Chad did school. I started applying to everything, stuff I had no business applying for. Several of those interviews were for supervisor positions in troubled teen facilities. Yeah, during today's conversation, I was reminded that one of them was even Provo Canyon School, the infamous facility that was the subject of Paris Hilton's documentary. I was desperate for a job, and so I had convinced myself that at 21 years old, I could handle a large group of, quote, troubled teens. I look back now as a mom of four and wonder, what in the world was I thinking? Who were these organizations that were all over that area? Who are these kids? And what is happening to them? And frankly, who is making all that money? Because it's certainly not the untrained, barely not teens themselves supervisors that are entrusted with them. When I realized there was a large part of the LGBTQ community that were survivors of the troubled teen industry, I knew we needed to chat with Meg Applegate, the founder of Unsilenced, a nonprofit dedicated to supporting survivors and advocating for the victims of the troubled teen industry. I also realized the victims are both the quote troubled teens and the parents who are duped into sending their kids away. While this episode can be challenging to take in, please know there is so much that is being done and so much more we can do in this area. Real change is happening created by real everyday people, people like our guests, Meg and Katie. Welcome everyone to Pride and Joy Foundation's podcast, Out of Curiosity. I'm your host, Elena Joy, pronouns she, her. I'm so excited to have with me two guests today to discuss something incredibly important that affects all of us and all of our children. So I have not seen that this conversation is happening very much outside of this. And so I'm super excited to bring you this value and this experience and wow, it's going to be incredible. So let's get into it. I'm really excited to welcome Meg and Katie from an organization called Unsilenced. I feel like, Meg, you can introduce the organization best. Like, I could do it, but I think I wouldn't do it justice. Will you please tell us what Unsilenced is? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us today. 
So Unsilence is a nonprofit organization, and we're comprised of a bunch of survivors of institutional abuse and also advocates that are aiming to stop institutional child abuse that's going on within the troubled teen industry. Please define troubled teen industry for me, because I think I know what it is, but I want to know from your perspective. No, that's a very valid question. So we we talk about the troubled teen industry, or TTI for short, as really being a network of powerful and underregulated congregate care facilities throughout the United States. And they claim to reform youth struggling with behavioral issues and educational challenges, but they use tough love and other non-evidence-based practices. And there's the key right there, isn't it? Non-evidence-based practices, yes. Our audience is familiar that I experienced conversion therapy and I'm involved in testifying at different state houses, trying to get it banned in different areas, which is really just to raise to raise awareness around it because the bans, as we all know, don't do much. But we're going to get into that a little more. Please tell me, Meg, what do you do for Unsilenced? What's your role? So I am the co-founder and CEO. So it was founded back at the very, very end of 2021. So we are about a year and a half old at this point. Amazing. And Katie, I'm so glad that you are here. Please tell us, what do you do for Unsilenced? I do a lot of the IT stuff as well as my archive, which is on the Unsilenced website. It's got over 100,000 reports and links and other things, survivor stories, news reports, DHS reports, everything. The reason why I built that and, you know, Unsilenced is awesome uh, adding to it is one of the things I asked my mother back in the day when she sent me off to a program since I'm a survivor as well is, you know, what was one of the things that could have stopped you from sending me away? And she said, if I had information about what those places were really like. So thus the the archive was, you know, born from that idea. I didn't even know that, Katie. So oh, yeah. I just learned that about you. <laughs> yeah. My mom back in like 2017 and 18, when we first started like really talking about it, she said that there, she wished there was like, you know, a place you can go look and see like how, like what these places were really like. So that was actually where the you know information gathering and other stuff came from. Thank you. And so tell me a little bit, Meg, tell me the scope of Unsilenced. Where are you and what are you doing and how are you impacting the world? Oh my gosh, we are everywhere. So as far as locations, we're a completely remote organization. So from coast to coast, we have advocates and survivors that are trying every day to make a social change. And um, as far as impact, we have a lot of different ways that we try to impact change. So we've got, you know, the prevention side of things, which is really carried out through Project SPEAK. And SPEAK stands for Survivor Prevention Through Education, Awareness, and Knowledge. And that's us going into communities and re-educating the decision makers to interrupt the pipeline that exists from communities to these institutions. And then for these survivors that unfortunately have already been through these programs and facilities, we offer independence packs, uh, which Katie helped set up, which are basically packs with a laptop full of resources and other essential items, a PDF of community-based alternatives and ways to get connected in the community for those who age out of programs and are 18 and are battling homelessness. So we send those out around the country to teens who are struggling. And then we also offer free of charge support groups. 
every month. And it's really a way for survivors to meet other survivors, to talk about their story, have connection and build community because we found that that's really, really important. And the first, and then the final way, which is quite possibly the largest is through our outreach, right? And that's through our social media and also through our archive and our website, which Katie can kind of go into as far as the importance of it, but getting those 100,000 documents that she talked about into the hands of decision makers and communities is extremely important. So we put a lot, um, well, Katie puts a lot of time into making sure that those documents are not only there, but they are all optimized to be fed into Google to reach the people that they need to reach. Oh my gosh. Multi-levels of being able to create impact in so many different ways. Something that really resonates with me, and I think it did from the moment we started chatting, was a huge part of why I created Pride and Joy Foundation was because I needed to heal. And advocacy work was going to be the way that was going to happen. And I mean, that's why I did my TED Talk. That's why I've done everything was because speaking about it, putting my voice to it gives me the power. And I, my power was taken away for so long. My voice was taken away for so long that being able to come, one, connect with people like you do, right? And then create impact and advocacy and policy. To me, that it, that has been my healing route. And I know it isn't for everyone, right? Most conversion therapy survivors can't talk about their experience. That is frankly not within their capacity. And for whatever reason, it is within mine. And I have people that respond to me and they're like, you're so brave for sharing your story, which is so kind of them to say, and I appreciate it. But also it is the way I'm still here. The more I can put voice to my story, the more I am, the more likely I am to stay here and live another day. Like that is how important it is to me. So I just see so much amazing parallels and you're not only like creating impact and policy, you're helping people heal and speak up for themselves and reclaim their voices and create impact for the next generation of kids that might be sent to these places. So, oh, this means so much to me and I'm so grateful that you're doing it. It's really interesting that you say that because just today I put a post on Instagram highlighting one of my favorite things that I say about what I do, and that's turning pain into purpose. And I think that's an extremely important thing for survivors to know that if you're able to, right, because that's a very big thing. There are, We're all in different places in our healing and our healing process. But when you get to that point where you can, it just brings you eons forward in your healing to be able to like do well by doing good. And that is so empowering to do knowing everything that happened to us, that we're still doing the right thing. And I think that that's, it's true empowerment. I think that's probably, I was going to say, I think that's probably something that most of our volunteers actually echo is that, you know, the, what they get out of volunteering for something like Unsilence or any other organization is the fact that it, you know, they, their control is taken away for so long and it gives them a way to empower and prevent people from going through the same thing they went through. A good friend of mine says that our goal is by the end of this to have no more people to thank us because there's no one else being made into survivors. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it wouldn't take that long if we can be really effective with the work. I agree. It's like one generation away. And to me, at least the perspective I've taken with conversion therapy is that we can ban it all we want. We can legislate it all we want. But if we can take the demand away, it goes away. 
You know, we don't we don't have to legislate it and regulate it if we can take the demand away. And I truly feel like most parents, if they knew the consequences and the repercussions, like your mom, Katie, right? Like if they knew, if they had the full information, they would not be sending their kids away. If my husband and I had known the real repercussions of conversion therapy, I would not have gone. Right. So it is a matter of education to create the impact that we're looking for. Like a so, cultural shift. Yes, a cultural shift and allowing parents to learn new information. Yep. Yeah, which I think that archive is like, like you said, it's, it is the, the pivotal point, right? Like it's the thing that will actually create that change. Well, one of many oh. things I was also going to say that, like, I mean, look at how parenting has changed so much since like, mm. you know, 90s to now. I'm not saying that the problem's eliminated, but I think that, you know, we as a society and as a culture grow like back in the day, conversion therapy seemed, even though it was junk science, seemed like real science. And now I think that culturally we're like shift media, everything we're like shifting to a different place. And ideally, uh, and, and Meg can talk a lot more about this, but like these places that, you know, the TTI are getting money from different places now because it's not as easy to get it from private pay. Ooh, yes. We need to explore that. (laughs) First, let's back up and let's talk about exactly what is the troubled teen industry. So from my perspective, as someone who's never had a direct connection with it, which I expect is the general public, to me, Okay, so there's a lot of programs here in Arizona. The most popular one that I've heard of that I've met a lot of people that have gone through is called Anasazi, and it's an outdoor wilderness thing that practically kills them and then hopefully saves them, right? And my impression is that the kids who are sent there, it's not just drugs or not just alcohol or not just any one thing. It's when a parent basically decides someone else will do a better job at this than me. I'm the one that's getting in the way. And so I need to send them away so that they can get the help that they need. They feel like it's a loving thing because they're at the end of their knowledge or their capacity or their ability or whatever it might be. That's literally all I know. So from your perspective, what are the myths and what are the truths of the troubled teen industry? So one of the most important things we can start off with is what is a troubled teen facility, right? How do we know that it's one of the programs that we're going to be talking about today? So these programs go by a lot of different names, but just to just like name a few, we're talking about therapeutic boarding schools, behavior modification programs, group homes and some foster care facilities, residential treatment centers, boot camps. If they say conversion camp, that's a big red flag. Religious facilities and academies and programs and wilderness programs and some juvenile justice facilities as well. So those are the ones we're talking about. And what determines something from being a troubled teen industry program or not is based on the fact that it uses tough love or behavior modification practices to change to a desired behavior or change the student in any way, right? And for a full list of red flags, you can go to unsilence.org and we have a tab that talks about all the red flags you can see in programs. So those are very those are very important to look at. But you touched on something really important, which is the fact that parents are thinking they're doing the right thing. And this is it's not this is really sad because most parents, most that send their kid to these kind of kind of programs are really trying to do the right thing. They're at their end of the rope and they're being told by quote professionals that if they don't do something and do it now, something bad is going to happen to their child. 
And so they use fear mongering. They use deceptive marketing. They put on their websites tons of horses and they, you know, say DBT, CBT and trauma-informed care and all of these, you know, therapeutic buzzwords to prey on the vulnerable decision makers. And what's even more tragic is that they, the parents then think after this that they have someone on their team. And that is even more tragic that when they're sending their kids there, they think, oh, thank God for this, right? Thank God that we finally have more quote professionals that are on our team to help care for the youth. And those are some of the most problematic facts. But then you go into the territory of the lack of oversight, the lack of, you know, regulations. Evidence-based um, practices. <laughs> lack of reporting. Like these are we're not talking about some like well-established healthcare industry. These programs are not based out of outcomes at all. There are no outcomes. They're not based off that like a hospital was, right? I was also going to add that a lot of the time parents are sending them there because they want therapy or something mental health wise. And the regulation for these programs, like when you compare them to like a mental health or psychiatric facility, the state level like psychiatric facility is something like, you know, this thick of like regulation and people even working from a lower level uh, have to have a certain qualification to even take care of the patients. When you look at like an RTC, a therapeutic boarding school, the regulation is almost nil. It's like maybe a dozen pages. You don't have, you know, most of the people that are spending the most time with these children are people of college age or only a few years younger, no qualifications, no degree, no uh, certification. They basically get their on-the-job training. And most of the time they're really young or they're just, you know, a lot of these places will set up shop in a place that doesn't have a lot of industry. So they're just, it's the only economy for that local area. For example, like one, I, I think Meg's, uh, like you'll see a lot of these programs in like remote areas. I think the one that you mentioned, the wilderness one is also uh, in Arizona. That one's in a remote area too. It's it's a, you know, it's a easy place for somebody to get a job when there's not a lot of jobs around. There was one place in, uh, in New York that I remember it was Ogdensburg. People had the choice of working at the local Walmart or this program. And that was program paid a dollar more than Walmart. So they got to take care of vulnerable youth all day or work at Walmart. And that like, that's pretty much what you'll see. I mean, I think Meg's program is in a remote part of Montana and it's the same thing. It's harder for the, it's harder for the local region to regulate it when it's almost a lot of these places are the you know one of the few sources of economy for the local area. And then you add on top of that that many of these programs over the last I don't know probably ten to fifteen years have now been bought out by private equity firms. So now we're not only dealing with a pretty low regulation, low oversight, low reporting, but now they are being governed by a business model of cost cutting to maximize returns, right? And now, you know, cost reduction is resulting in staff cuts and reliance on unlicensed personnel. So we're having more accidents. We're having more restraints. We're having all of these issues. We're having deaths, right? And so I don't see any healthcare system that should be governed by private equity or incentivized by anything else but outcomes. I would ask parents if they're listening to this, think about yourself when you were 21 years old, how your maturity level, who you were as a person. Do you think you could be 
I mean, in most cases, I know for me, when I was 21, I could not think of taking care of or being responsible for the emotional well-being of 20 at-risk vulnerable youth. And that's what many of these people who are working day to day and in, you know, 90% of the time with these students are, that's the situation you're, you're looking at, understaffing very young or unqualified people. And I mean, I'm, I'm 40 years old now. I don't think I could manage 20 vulnerable youth all at once or be responsible for a physical incident or anything like that. I'm not trained. I'm not educated in that. And that's way too much. But that's the situation where many of these kids end up in with these programs, just slimming down staff and putting a warm body without training or any sort of education in charge of kids with histories of trauma, abuse, other things that are, you know, make them vulnerable. So that's one thing I would have most parents think about, like, what were you like when you were 21? Could you handle 20 vulnerable youth without any supervision or training? And the interesting thing is, is that I think this would be true in most states that if you look at nail salons, they have more regulations than these programs. That's crazy. That's wild. So it puts it into perspective for for people. It 100% does. And to that, I really want to address that because it's a common issue that comes up with conversion therapy and I'm guessing in TTI as well is that there is a feeling is in America specifically of I am the parent that knows best for my kid and no government can tell me what's best for my kid, which I totally get. I'm the mom of four kids. I understand that perspective. Also, our country has put, our society has put into place laws to protect children when parents do not, right? That's why we have seatbelt laws. It's why we have child seat laws, right? Baby seat laws. It's why we have child porn laws. Because when parents fail to protect their kids, there's laws in place. That's why we need to regulate these places to make sure that we're protecting the next generation of our citizens, which I I just, this whole thing is blowing me away. Hey fam, you've heard that writing a book will help your career. You've watched other colleagues get published and step onto bigger stages and become more visible. You're curious about whether this is the next right step for you, but you haven't taken action yet. Outright Authors is an eight-week course just for LGBTQ plus authors-to-be that gives you the tools to raise your voice and write a nonfiction book that makes an impact. You'll leave OWA knowing exactly why you want to write this book, what you want to say, who it's for, and how it'll be structured. Plus, you'll create a detailed outline and actionable next steps to write your book and get it published. This class only happens once a year, so head to outrightauthors.com to submit your application before the window closes. Payment plans are available and a few scholarships too. So head to outrightauthors.com and join us. I do want to talk about, you know, I'm conflating conversion therapy and the troubled teen industry quite a bit. And, And let's get really specific. There are conversion therapy camps in the troubled teen industry, but what there's also a lot of are troubled teen industry locations and organizations that are not overtly conversion therapy specific, but we know that the effect of conversion therapy, which is the suicidal ideation and the struggle for mental health, comes from any program whose goal is to result in heteronormativity. And so let's get into that. What is the experience like for a queer child, whether they're out to their parents, to themselves, to anyone or not, What is their experience like in one of these facilities? 
I got this one. Uh, so I am a lesbian and uh, my parents, I will just say this. I, I want to give them all the credit in the world. My parents are pretty progressive. Even in the 90s, they never cared about who may be gay or who may not be. I wasn't out though. I was a teenager struggling with it because I didn't know how to tell my parents. I got sent away to a program in Utah in the 90s. And even though yeah, I never experienced homophobia in my home or anything like that. I had to see it applied to other people in that program. So in that program, if one of the worst things you could do is, you know, and these are teenagers, time when you're usually experimenting or trying to figure out who you are, if they express any sort of same-sex traction, any sort of affection for another girl or a boy for another boy, they would be punished pretty harshly. Like they would be put in pink sweats, bright pink ones, just to make sure that you're, the staff are keeping an extra eye on you, forced to sleep in a cot in the hall. So the staff is always seeing you. You're not alone in the room. You have to shower and go to the bathroom with the door open because you might sleep, you know, sneak in there. It was always reinforced that you don't know what you want and that it's not okay. Don't trust your gut. Don't trust because it's misguiding you. Yeah. So even though I didn't get sent away to be converted or anything like that, I received these really negative, you know, and I, it kept me in the closet until I was 18 years old because I was scared to come out because I saw how people treated gay people in the programs. Even now, like those programs, even like, for example, Utah banned conversion therapy in 2020. And Meg and I were in DC last year, which is a one party consent district. And we called Utah programs, which is also one party consent state. I pretended to be a parent. And I said that my child's only problem was that she was bisexual. She didn't know what she wanted. And she was too young to make that decision. Every single program I called probably like half a dozen, except for the ones like receptionists who got offended over me saying it because they wouldn't even send me to the salesperson. Every single program said that they could fix her, that they would straighten her out, that that they agreed that that was a rose to the level to send your child away to and and imprison them in a program, that in itself. And so even though these programs don't advertise themselves as conversion therapy, they advertise themselves as a one-size-fits-all fi uh, to fix every problem, mental health, teenage rebellion, sexuality, acting out in any way the parent doesn't like. And their promise is to break the child down and remake them or reinforce the behaviors that only they want. And furthermore, I, you know, I didn't have an experience as being a lesbian in program, obviously, but I did have my own experience being in a program that wasn't really conversion therapy. You just weren't allowed to talk about it. If you were lesbian, it was all girls. So if you, if you were lesbian, you couldn't talk about your sexuality at all. So it was just like pushed away. But Katie touched on something really interesting, which is that we have the one size fits all approach that they have. But even furthermore than that is that it is a, they hate differentiation. <laughs> they hate kids that come in and are going to take a different approach or they have, uh, you know, they need special treatment, whether that be through like possibly they have higher support needs or they have different pronouns. So in the same way that the more they have to go off of their daily schedule and, and go off of their autopilot and have to get approval for certain things, it makes their life difficult. So they don't like it. So they like it to be all in one box. And so even if a program has the best of intentions, let's say they don't even, you know, they're not homophobic or transphobic at all. However, they run a business and they, they want to make it easy 
the easier it is, the less staff they use, you know. So those kinds of things also play into it for the programs that even claim to not have an issue with these types of things. Mm -hmm. The LGBTQ plus people that I know that have been sent to a troubled teen industry facility, they all have the same story. And I never say that about anything except this. The story is always the same. Something happened to them as a young child that was traumatic. As a young teen, they started acting out. They were miscommunicating with their parents. Whether their sexuality was out, whether their gender identity was out, was regardless, it was the same path. It was trauma as a child, acting out as a teen, being sent away. And then they experienced what they experienced there. And when you and I first chatted, you told me a statistic of how many in your support community identify as LGBTQ+, and it was significantly more than the general population. I can't remember what it was. Definitely over 50%. And that's not even our community. That's just, we require people to take our diversity study when they come into Unsilenced. So that is just any, any survivor or advocate that has ever volunteered with us. I remember it being somewhere north of like maybe 52, 55, 56% of people that come in identify as being LGBTQ+. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was pretty similar in the overall community as well. Katie, yeah, what are your I think, thoughts on that? I don't know if it's 50%, but I will say it's higher than the average population. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe 50% of volunteers at Unsilence, but I'm just thinking about people in the TTI To some degree, though, I I think like because being uh, LGBTQIA youth, no matter how much we've come as a a society, you know, there's always parents that want to conform their child, people with like religious beliefs that it's not normal. There's the fact that even just the experience of trying to come out and figure out who you are, what you are is is in itself can create strife and within the family. And I, I do think that more kids who are LGBTQIA do uh, plus do get sent away than heterosexual p- kids because of that. And so I do definitely agree with Meg. It's a higher a higher percentage for sure. And I think that you know as we're looking through these like these laws, these changing laws that are targeting LGBTQIA youth and trans people. I think those are going to, you know, those are a danger. I know that Meg has been amazing about showing support for the the community because a lot of these laws could potentially jeopardize sending kids to, you know, have the state or other people send kids to the program. I mean, look at Florida. They're now like they're willing to void uh, custody in other states and do other things or have CPS or their local DHS jump into a parenting situation if they provide gender affirming care and other things. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of these states, because of the troubled teen programs, like the idea of tough love and just the diminishing middle class, the TTI has reared its ugly head into public funds now. So where they will take kids from foster care, juvenile justice, CPS, and try to fix these problems. So a place like Florida or certain states that will take the children out of the custody of parents for providing gender affirming care or, you know, supporting them for being LGBTQIA+. They can send them away to be warehoused in a program in another state. And the idea of conversion therapy or whatever else is a feature, not a bug for them. Thank you for connecting those dots, because I had not. And I feel like that brings a whole new light to what is happening in a lot of those states. We have a lot of parents that come to our events, especially when they are 
gender non-conforming youth focused. And there's a big concern for them to even show up at an online event. They change their name on the screen or they don't have their video on because in their state, they can get in trouble for pursuing gender affirming care for their kid. And so now to think that that state now has the ability to take their child and put them into a facility and profit off of it. Like, it's just, it's making my brain melt a little bit. So I went to Provo Canyon School. It was made famous by the This Is Paris documentary. I was in that documentary with her. I went to school there with Paris. There was a boy, and I'll keep his, his name, his story is rather public, but it's not my story to completely out, you know, out. But the boy was driving, you know, his mom, he was, I think he was 12 years old, driving through Idaho. His parent lived in another state. They were going to another state. Mother was pulled over. Something, you know, and I, I don't want to break her privacy. Something happened where her child was taken away. The kid was, was supposed to go to foster care. They sent him to Provo. He's a 12-year-old. They sent him to Provo Canyon School where he experienced horrible abuse to warehouse him. Then they sent him to another facility just to warehouse him while the C, you know, CPS, DHS case got worked out. Those are the same things that could happen to kids that are taken away because the parents provide gender-affirming care. A lot of these states don't, like CPS, like doesn't have in-house facilities to house the children. They don't have enough group homes or foster care, you know, foster families. So they send these kids to be warehoused. And uh, I'd say that like Provo Canyon School probably makes more money from public sector dollars from just warehousing kids for any reason than they probably do from private pay and insurance at this point. And that's a lot of the industry now. I think that a lot of people don't see the danger in these rising, these changing laws, but when you criminalize or make it illegal for a parent to provide, affirm a child's gender orientation or call it abuse or call it, you know, or, and have CPS remove the child, that child's going somewhere. And a lot of times it can be a TTI facility. Yeah. 40%. And the kid's not even even troubled except, you know, in the sense Mm -hmm. that they, just are a different gender than what, you know, was on their birth certificate, or they have a same-sex attraction. There's nothing wrong with that, but we as a society still have a lot to, and culture have a long ways to go to understand and accept. That also goes for straight kids who have any sexuality. So it's like, I think that, and and this touches on something really important uh, and what On Silence really strives to do, which is to depathologize all of that, adolescence, mental health, just our choices as a team, we we have those choices and we should have those choices. And teens are supposed to be interested in sex. <laughs> like that's something that's very, very normal. And I think that that's important to have too, is why, why do these programs care so much? I think it's kind of strange. Why are they involved in our sexual activity and our sexual life? I think it's very odd. There's a really good book if anyone wants to pick it up. It's not LGBTQIA specific, but it's Maya Sal- Salvitz's uh, Help at Any Cost. And it was written like over a decade ago. So, you know, a lot of it is geared towards like just talking about the TTI from like the 90s and early 2000s perspective. But there's a really good chapter towards the end of the book that I really love that just talks about how normal teenage development in general, like evolution and how we develop. This is part of our teenage rebellion. It's actually part of evolution because when we are dependent upon our parents and a caregiver, we grow up being dependent upon it, but our personality and our 
nature of wanting to separate from the caregiver naturally starts to come out when we're a teenager. And that manifests itself in ways that our parents may find annoying, our parents may disagree with, our parents that may, may pull out, you know, make your parents pull out their hair and wonder what's wrong. And I think that sometimes parents need to understand that that's, that is actually part of evolution as frustrating as it is. We're trying to find our own identity when we're in our teenage years. And the unfortunate part is that sometimes it manifests itself or smoking weed, trying, you know, trying uh, uh, to drink, going uh, like, you know, going and hanging out with the wrong crowd just because our caregivers tell us that we we can't. And it sucks. And it I'm not saying teenagehood is a great time to be a parent. It's it's not. But that is like the natural part of evolution. And I think that most parents do go through it, even if, you know, it is frustrating but there are other, you know, if, if the kid needs help, if the kid needs like therapy, rehab, whatever, there are actually evidence-based, community-based treatments that they can also need when it when it rises to a level that they actually need professional help. And I think that that was going to be one of my questions. We might as well go there right now. If we have a parent who's listening to this, who's thinking, I am at my wit's end. I don't know what else to do. What are my other options? What would you tell them? First of all, I would have to say that, and and I'm a mom of four, so I'm not saying this with any judgment because I know how hard it is. And oh my God, it is hard. Um, My oldest daughter is 12 and she's very much so in that teenage year, teenage attitude. And some days I'm just at it. So I do say this with the utmost compassion and empathy, but one of the things that we have tried and have noticed is that we're perceiving their behaviors and their attitudes through our adult mind. So we view it as they need help. They're not making the right decisions. But really, a lot of it is just emotional dysregulation that's quite normal for a teenager. So one of the things that we always suggest first off, and I think this go, it's counterintuitive, when we see someone wanting help or looking like they need help, we want to get them help, right? We're thinking we're being a good parent. I want to challenge that and say, go get help for yourself go find a therapist that you can talk to about your teenager's behavior, find a parent coach that can help you learn different techniques based on the temperament for your child. Because I can tell you right now, I have four different kids that are being parented four different ways and it gets confusing, but it's not a one size fits all. And the more that you can put more tools into your tool belt as a parent to learn how to parent that specific child, the better off you are. And for one of those reasons that you're better off is because they're not being labeled as needing a therapist, as needing help, as being the issue. That does a lot of harm on a developing brain, thinking that, oh, wait, these feelings I'm feeling right now aren't normal because my mom sent me to a therapist because of them. Those go a long way when you're developing. So that would be the first thing. Now, if a child is struggling with the law, and we're seeing massive issues and uh, they're skipping out of school, being truant, doing tons of drugs and things like that, you can go to MST, which is a type of therapy that has been really proven for at-risk youth. And it's multi-systemic therapy. And it is very underutilized within communities. Usually you find it a lot within like the juvenile justice system. But if you look online and you target that type of therapy, it is really research-backed as being not even a long-term therapy. We're talking about, I think the course is 12, uh, six months and it does wonders for the child and also for the entire family system. And that's another point, which is even if your child is having massive issues, we have to look within ourselves 
because any family system or any relationship, and just as parents out there listening know if there's a problem with your spouse, there's always something you can do differently. And the same thing is with the relationship with our children. Just because we're adults doesn't mean we don't have to alter what we do. And so I think it's really important that any therapy that a child is in for these, you know, troubling behaviors that they're they're showing, it includes the entire family system and that that, get, that gets worked on. I was also going to chime in one other thing. I think that one seductive part about the trouble teen programs, like the idea is that they offer a one size fits all. Like every time Meg and I go to like an event or something, people are like, well, what's the solution if not this? And I'm like, well, you have to first understand that the premise of their solution is a fraud. There is no such thing as a one size fits all to cure or help with autism, bipolar, ADHD, you know, like even mental health psychiatric hospitals don't claim to be a jack of all trades. But these programs claim that they're going to fix everything from teenage rebellion to every single mental health illness. And there's just no therapist, like especially when you have a staff of like five therapists, no one's that good at that many diagnoses. In reality, the the solution, like like Meg kind of started to go into, is is depends on the problem. Like for example, an eating disorder is usually manifests when there's a lack of control or trauma, and that also creates a lack of control. So taking away a kid's control is usually not a good thing to do for an eating disorder. Depending on the problem, it needs a different solution. So uh, one of the things that Meg and I did is that we went and actually researched a lot of community-based treatments and put it on the website as well and tried to organize by like, you know, physical aggression, trauma, other things that are evidence-based treatment that people can look into, like wraparounds and family functional therapy. So if you go to unscience.org, there's a whole list of like different types of potential community-based treatment and that are scientific, you know, evidence-based and we try to point out which ones are evidence-based to solve what types of problems or help with what types of problems. One thing I'm going to touch on, and it's it's not going to make sense until the very end, but before, before I was the CEO of Unsilenced a long time ago, I owned a dog training and I was a, a, a franchise and I was also a dog behavioral therapist. So I owned my own franchise and I would go to these people's homes and we the basis of our training is actually training the people in their home with their dog. And yes. So, one of the biggest things that I had to combat was the business of sending your dog to boot camp. You send your dog to boot camp for six to eight weeks, they come back and they're perfect, right? The interesting thing is, is that when these dogs come back, they they were trained at the facility, but they're just livid when they come back, the owners, because the dogs aren't treating it, them the same as they did the handlers. And you know why? Any kind of training is relational based. Your relationship with your dog is going to dictate how well they listen. So I tell them it doesn't work. And I hate to compare this to, to dog training, but the reason why people fall victim to this is because it's easy. It's a lot easier to send your child away to be fixed in a place that says they can do it. And they know that. That's why they're saying that, right? But the issue is, is however good they're doing at this facility, when they come home, it wasn't you that taught them how to do that good, even if it is good, right? Mm-hmm. So and away against their will. So that relationship a lot of times is gone. And uh, we see with a lot of survivors, it never comes back because of the lack of trust. And trust is an important thing here. How can we expect that we are going to have a good relationship with our children when we are sending them against their will to these programs, oftentimes ripped out of their beds in the middle of the night, abducted, 
how do we expect that we're going to have a relationship with them after that, uh, after the trust is ruptured like that? So I ask parents out there to think about it in those terms. How can we expect children to um, respect us when we're not respecting them? Mm-hmm. Yes. I would like to switch gears for the last part of this conversation and tell me a typical LGBTQ person who went through a troubled teen facility. It seems like there are outcomes that are common amongst people. And so if someone's listening to this and they're like, yeah, I was sent to one of those facilities and yeah, I am experiencing X, Y, and Z and I didn't realize it maybe came from that. What might some of those experiences be? So when I went, uh, was sent away to a troubled teen program, I had zero sexual experience, to be fair. I hadn't even kissed a girl at that point. And because the idea of sex, was, and not just with other girls, but everything in general, normal teenage sexuality, masturbation, everything was so stigmatized as negative, but especially LGBTQIA plus sexual experiences. Like I spent a lot of formulative years, like two and a half years of my teenagehood in a program where I didn't get to have those normal experiences that normal people like gay youth have, even, you know, behind the scenes that the parents don't know. I didn't get to express myself sexually. I came out of it not knowing, having these residual, like shameful feelings that I didn't know where they came from about sex, about being gay, about, I was just embarrassed and ashamed of like doing anything like sexually. And I didn't know where it came from. And I, you know, felt nervous. Because your parents were supportive. So you're like, it didn't come from mom and dad. No, it, it definitely didn't come from mom and dad. You know, everything that like you normally like learn in your teenagehood that you're, you know, that help you come and accept it was just stunted and felt these feelings of shame that I didn't learn from home. I felt like I would be judged. I didn't learn that from home uh, about being sexual, being expressing my sexuality about even talking to people about it. And, you know, it's, it lingers on it, like it lingered on throughout my twenties to the point where in my early twenties, I had to be pretty inebriated to feel even comfortable enough to go walk up to a girl. And at this point, like I'm way past that. I'm happily married, but I, I look at that and like, you know, a lot of people, you know, that experience this in the troubled teen industry, like they never, if they didn't touch drugs before they went to the program, like you will see like higher occurrences of addiction or experimentation with drugs and other things, because you don't, you come out of that, those places feeling like an alien outside in the real world, in your own families or just outside. You don't know how to adjust the world because you've never had a job or, you know, that you normally have when you're a teenager for summer, you've never driven a car or learned to drive. You feel like a, uh, this false sense of like traumatic maturity where you don't know how to talk to people your own age or have fun the same way. So a lot of people, like there's a higher rate of suicides for survivors, uh, addiction and other things, because I remember the first time when I was like 20 something, you know, in my early twenties where I tried, you know, I, I tried ecstasy and I was like, wow, I don't think about the past and I feel like I can fit in and be normal. It wasn't a healthy way of expressing myself. And I'm well aware of when I, that wasn't a good thing, but a lot of the program survivors have these same experiences because 
they feel like an alien and like nobody understands them outside in the real world. And they feel embarrassed of who they are and their identity and other things. And I can say that even Katie and I obviously had very different experiences and I'm not, I don't consider myself LGBTQ plus. And um, I had the exact same experience, same shame. And I felt the exact same, almost like a, I don't even know, arrested development feeling within me of not being the same as other people my age once I was out. Like I just felt way different. And why couldn't I be like that? Yeah, it's weird. You feel like both way mature than more mature and like adult, like this traumatic forced adulthood. But at the same time, you feel so emotionally stunted compared to everyone your own age. It's like this internal contradiction that you can't, you you can't know unless you experience. It's like, I, I knew I could handle anything that came my way because one thing that we definitely are, are resilient right? Like I knew that anything terrible that came in my way that I would be able to get through it, but it was like, I couldn't handle conflict (laughs) and I couldn't handle like having a normal relationship with someone. So it's like the hard stuff we could do because we, we were put through it, but the, the stuff that should be easy by the time that you're like 20, I was struggling with. (laughs) This is actually something else Meg and I both can understand is a lot of time with program survivors because abuse and uh, unhealthy relationships like with staff and other things become normalized, a lot of the times you'll see survivors initially when they get out or for a few years after, a lot of times you'll see people end up in really abusive relationships because when you're told that this is love or this is normal or this is okay, it's hard to, your internal barometer of what abuse is, is is broken. That's why like Meg can say like, I don't like conflict. I just think that this is normal. This is okay. I, you know, I should be happy that someone loves me this much. And Meg and I are both two people who went through abusive relationship. I hope I don't mind. You don't mind me saying this abusive relationships after the program that like very much mirrored their each other because we just were like, okay, this is what's normal. I was taught that in the program that this is normal, that somebody belittles me or treats me like this because that's love. That's that's, I deserve this. I'm doing something wrong. You take this hyper accountability over maturity approach to everything is your fault. That's so true. <laughs> so true. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. I truly appreciate it. And I know it's vulnerable and it's intimate and here it is on a podcast, but I truly appreciate knowing a little bit more about the experience and how it affects on so many different levels. Anyone who's in the audience listening to this is probably feeling like we've got to do something. <laughs> like this is affecting so much and we have to do something. On the flip side, we might also have audience members thinking, well, I'm never going to send my kid to one of these. So this isn't really relevant to me, right? And I think I would push back on that because I think I often go there and how I pull myself out of that is to think, but my kid's future partner might be experiencing this. Like my grandkids parent might be experiencing this and that's going to affect my grandkids and my kid as a partner, right? Like that's kind of where I extrapolate it to. And for me, that brings me back to, oh, this is my issue as well. A hundred percent. This is my issue as well. Right. And so what are people able to do? You mentioned earlier that there's advocacy, that there's work to be done. What can the average mom in the average town do after hearing this podcast? 
Well, first of all, one of the ways that it really makes it everyone's problem is that 23 billion in public funds, your tax dollars, are going into funding these facilities. So that's another way that we can push back and say this is a societal problem that we need to tackle together. And that's just from the federal funds, not to count as late state funds. Yes. So, and the reason why we can't include those is because there's no reporting and it's really difficult to get. So that should show you just how strange that is. But to the moms or to the dads or to the caregivers who are thinking, well, I don't have a quote troubled teen, but what can I do is you go out and you talk about what we're doing. You talk about this issue. You talk about the troubled teen industry and you talk about unsilenced and you go to the PTA and you raise your hand. You go to church and you raise your hand. You go to anywhere where you have a capability of raising your hand and you bring up this issue because that's the only way that we're going to have society in general be looking at this with a little bit of a cocked head and being like, wait a second, should we relook at this? And the answer is yes. The raising a hand at the PTA and at the school board is a big thing. You got any of you mothers out there ever wish you had better schools, that your that your public schools were better? Well, a lot of the time, these programs suck up public funding from IAPs and just special ed budgets from schools, money that could be used in other ways to help kids by giving them a blanket conduct disorder uh, diagnosis. A lot of times, these programs actually advise parents or advise school boards on how to do it. So that way, they can dip into those funds from from the uh, and force the public schools to send the kid away for ten, you know ten and pay ten thousand dollars a month. Those school districts could be putting those funds back into teachers and put into uh, better books and other things for your kids. But unfortunately, they've preyed on these budgets and raising your hands and talking about this in the in the school district, checking those budgets. A lot of these times, these are public records. You can request them and talking about unsilenced as well. And if any parents actually feel you know motivated or incentivized, we we are all volunteer based. Feel free to like volunteer, you know, donations so we can grow the archive and other things are great too. A lot of times the survivor independence pack because a lot of LGBTQIA youth that get out of the programs, especially if their parents don't accept them, are left homeless. Meg actually drove down to San Diego to deliver a pack and a bunch of groceries to one, like one such child who aged out and didn't have family that supported them. That that is, we're trying to provide support to prevent the kids to go there to raise awareness and possibly have kids pulled out and also support the survivors after they leave. And we always are looking for new ways to do that in any way, shape or form and more resources to do so. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's amazing. That's exactly. I'm just copying you, Meg. (laughs) That was perfect. And I really hope that we can figure out a way that Pride and Joy Foundation can support Unsilenced and we can collaborate and create more impact because this is this is near and dear to many of us. Many of us are connected in some way to this. So thank you so much. So we are going to provide all the links to Unsilenced in our show notes, but is there anything else that our audience needs to hear? I would just say that If you are a survivor of one of these programs, just know that you're not alone, that there is a gigantic community that is going to welcome you with open arms. And I say this all the time, but like when I first met the community three years ago, I went to my husband and I said, I just found my people to find people that already know what you're going through without having to explain it 
is something really beautiful and it's something really powerful. And having a such a large group of community members that are willing to help you through hard times, just no questions asked, is really hard to find in this world. And I just find myself so lucky to have this community. So please reach out to us, find us on Facebook and come be a part of Unsilenced and the greater community. Thank you. Thank you both so much for being here. I truly appreciate you. Well, I've never had a conversation like that. Have you? I learned so much and it just keeps coming back to bodily autonomy and how a select group of people is trying to decide which bodies get it and which bodies don't. The troubled teen industry is a cog in a huge system, one that a lot of our LGBTQ community is caught up in. It's an industry that is making a huge profit off our children's struggles and our parents' despair. We have all of the unsilenced links in our show notes. If their mission resonated with you, please check them out and get involved. Seek the support that you need and pursue your queer joy at all costs. Be good to yourselves, fam. I appreciate you.